Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You yet again that You speak to us in Your Word. That in Your Word, we find truth. Truth that convicts us of sin and truth that offers us hope. Lord, I ask that as you, Your Word is preached, that Your Spirit, He would be here. He would be active. That He would be imparting life to Your people. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So the, for the next about uh, six weeks, Lord willing, we are going to be going in, throughout the uh, book of Micah, covering uh, the first two chapters here this morning. And the prophet Micah in his book is really a really interesting book because it's often cited in, in pop culture and in pop Christianity uh, for various different reasons. And often I find uh, those reasons aren't often in line with what the prophet's actually getting at. Uh, as a prophet, Micah did his work uh, about from 7, 750 B.C. to 686 B.C. He was a contemporary of the prophets Hosea and Isaiah. He spoke to the leaders of both uh, parts of the divided kingdom, the northern and southern kingdoms, both to, to, to Samaria and Jerusalem, Israel and Judah. And there's actually a few words here sprinkled to the nations as a whole. As a prophet, Micah spoke the word of the Lord. He speaks for the Lord. And he offers a message that is largely a message of judgment. But like with all the other prophets, it's not just judgment. There's also hope. The name Micah means literally, who is like the Lord. Right? So if you're thinking about a name for a child or grandchild, his name literally means, who is like the Lord. And his name begin, or appears at the beginning of this book. And then there's an intentional allusion to it at the very end of this book. If you flip forward a few pages, Micah 7.18 ends with or introduces this question, Who is like the Lord? It says, Who is a God like you? And then it explains the character of the Lord as we have seen it in this book. And so the main character of the book of Micah is not Israel. It's not Judah. It's not the nations. It's not Micah the prophet. The main character is the Lord. Throughout this book, we are going to be introduced to who this Lord is and how His character is different. As I've grown older, from time to time, I look back at my earlier days, especially my growing up years in middle school and high school, and sometimes I have fond memories, but more often than not, I cringe. I don't know if that ever happens to you. I, the memories that stick out to me, I'm like, man, I was an idiot uh, back then, especially as a young man. In my hometown, sometimes I definitely conducted myself as a fool and rather arrogant in that foolishness. Some of that was natural to the growing up process of figuring out how to live in this world, and some of it is unique to me in the sin tendencies that I had growing up. The reality is, all of us sin in many different ways. And as we grow up in the faith, and hopefully in wisdom too, I'm sure we, we still, we can all look back, and there are moments that if they were broadcast to the world, you would cringe. Your face would become flush with embarrassment of how you acted. If you've ever had one of those brought back up at an inopportune time, you know exactly of what I speak. Now, if you can't think of any memories like that, 
there's really only two options. Either you are born perfect, or you remain a fool and don't realize that you had times like that. And really, only the second option is possible. But I want you to consider for a moment your faults, your sins, and the shame that they bring with them. Think about when your sin becomes public or known and how the embarrassment grows. Only the most calloused heart finds pride in their sins and trumpets them to others. I want you to think about that in light of the prophets. Their job, quite literally, was to expose people's sin. To go to the nation and to list publicly all of their flaws, all of their faults, for everyone to hear. Their words were often hard words, mocking at times. We're going to see that this morning. And a call to repentance. But that was not all. Mingled with the calls of judgment that would surely come was also messages of hope. It wasn't just being a fault finder. It is really easy in today's world to be a fault finder. To heap people's shortcomings up again and again and again, especially the closer our relationships are. You think family and marriage. But Christians are never to be merely fault finders. We point out errors, we point out faults with the aim at redemption. The aim at forgiveness. Of pointing to our Savior. Grief over sin is good, but we also want to rejoice over grace. And hopefully we're going to walk that line today and throughout this series. Because today we're going to cover that first two chapters of the book of Micah. The book of Micah is a series of oracles or announcements about coming judgment and salvation. And that first series is really chapter 1 and 2. And God announces the coming judgment on Israel and Judah. And he exposes their sin. So this book opens with a startling picture. A description of God, of his wrath, and of his judgment. In essence, this book opens by saying, pay attention. Listen up. Sit up in your seat because God is about to judge. He's going to judge us for our sins. And that should bring a sober pause to all of us. God will judge. That's the name of this sermon. It is 100% accurate. God will judge. Not if. God will. It's only a matter of when. In fact, if God refuses to judge our sin, then He is not God, but He is a devil. We've become so demented in how we think about God that we feel like we need to explain away the fact that He judges sin. The Bible's got a completely different problem. The Bible has to explain why God forgives sin sometimes. Why He doesn't judge us sometimes. Our God is a God of mercy, but He will never, ever, even in His forgiveness of our sin, excuse or explain away sin. We are masters Really, we have PhDs in excusing our sin. You've all done it. I've done it. I did something wrong, and I can give you my sob story of why I did wrong what I did wrong. None of that works on God. He doesn't buy it. Consider verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, 
And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. When we talk about sin being exposed publicly, and how embarrassing that can be, and how our stomachs drop, this passage reminds us that none of your sins are actually secret. Not one of them. No secret thought, no secret action. The Lord here is called as a witness against you. The Lord Himself has seen your sin. None of it is actually hidden. That embarrassment you feel when your old mistakes come back to light is but a small warning of what God's judgment is like. And that is what Micah is communicating to Israel and Judah here. And so there should be a sense of dread in one sense as we consider this. The Lord sees all. He knows all. No thought, no lie, no secret action goes unnoticed. He is the witness to it all. And when we pause for that for just a moment, we should be consumed with wonder that we are not all instantly consumed by God's judgment. He is patient. He is long-suffering. And He is called as a witness against us in our sin. As we work throughout this book, you need to keep this in mind. Micah, more, more than any other book in the Bible, is laid out like a court drama. A courtroom drama. Who's your first witness that you're going to call? I'm calling the Lord as my witness. And all throughout this book, the case against the nation of Israel, now divided, is laid out. And it is God who is judge, jury, executioner, and the witness, and the offended party. Consider all of this in light of what then happens in verses 3-4. to For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. The picture here is striking. I call the Lord as a witness, Here He comes, and as He comes out of His holy temple, the mountains literally melt away in His presence. That's the one who's coming in judgment. To me, as I read this, it kind of pictures, there's two pictures that come into my, my brain as I read through this. The first is the picture of a parent saying to their children who are misbehaving, you don't want me to come down there. Shape up, because if I come down there, you're not going to like what happens. And the Lord comes, and the ground and the mountains melt away. If there's anything in this earth that seems immovable, it is mountains. And they melt away in His presence. The second picture that conjures up in my mind, and yes, you'll have to forgive me for my nerdiness here, is if you've seen any of the Marvel superhero movies, the bad guy goes through all this trouble to get five infinity stones. They're God stones. Right? And he snaps his fingers and he kills half of all living things in the universe. They just disintegrate. Well, God one-ups him. And the very universe itself melts away when he comes in judgment. That is the picture that Micah wants you to have in your head. God will judge sin and he will judge sinners. And he is right to do so. Now, there are two ways that we can look at that and get it very, very wrong. 
The first I've already mentioned is to see God's judgment as a defect. Something that we need to apologize for. Something that we need to explain away so that modern sensibilities are not offended. But if God is not holy, if he is not righteous, if he is not pure, and if he is not opposed to evil, then evil will win. It will never end. It will continue forever. And it will go unchecked. And there are evils out there, even today, that we get all upset about. That you start getting angry over and say, won't someone do this? Well, if God will not judge that, then He will not judge any sins. If He will not judge your small sins, then He will not judge those big ones that you hate so much. So much of this that we are allergic to God's judgment reveals how little we think of our own sin. And how prideful we have become about how good and upright we are. I'll put it to you this way. God hates your little sins more than you hate the sins of the Holocaust, the sins of child trafficking, the sins of murdering children. Whatever sin it is that really gets under your skin, God hates your little sins more than you hate that one. He also hates that one more than you hate that one. And he is right to do so. If there is no holy God who will judge, then there is no sin or and there is no evil, and anything goes, and there is no justice in this world, and we're left with might makes what is right. The second way we can look at God's judgment and be wrong is we can look at the judgment of God and say something like that. Yeah, you go get them, God. Those guys are terrible over there. Take out those evildoers. Now, I'm going to be careful here, because there are all Bible passages like that. There is a way to do that correctly. But we cannot say things or think things like that with a hard heart thinking that you too do not deserve that mountain melting judgment. If you would not be happy that your greatest enemy has received the same grace that you have received then you too underestimate the offensiveness of your sin. It is good to be opposed to evil as God is but we also need to be merciful as God is. Verse 5 rounds out this section as God explains that He will judge Judah and Israel, or Samaria here. He will judge His chosen people. He will judge those He has made a covenant with. He will judge those that He calls His own sons. He will judge those that He calls His treasured possession. Brothers and sisters, if God would judge Israel in such a way, then He would judge us in such a way. We are no better than they are. And this judgment, while it does in Micah come in this life through the exile of Israel, that judgment is only a beginning. That judgment only points forward to the future judgment in eternity. All earthly judgments are but a foretaste of that final judgment to come. We're talking about hell, where teeth will gnash, where the worm will never die, where the fire and the smoke of that ruin will go up forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, we don't like talking about hell. Why would you? And if you have an unhealthy fascination with hell, well, we should probably talk. 
but hell exists. And the fact that those word pictures, the gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies and continues to devour, where the fire never goes out, those words I have given to you come from the New Testament. Those word pictures come primarily from the mouth of Christ. Most of what we know about the doctrine of hell is found in the New Testament and from the very words of our Savior. If you think Christ is the picture of love, and He is, then you must consider that hell, in talking about it, is also loving. And hell will make the melting of mountains look like child's play. God will judge. So as a witness, God has seen the sin of His people. What sin in particular has provoked this judgment? God will lay out the sins of the people that have led Him to judging them. Of course, sin in general provokes the judgment of God. The wages of sin is death. But Israel was in a covenant with the Lord. And in that covenant, if you read the book of Leviticus, God has made provision for the sins of the people. In other words, it wasn't just, oh, they've messed up, now I'm coming down there and melting all the mountains. God had given them sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice so that their sins within that covenant could be dealt with. Yes, we know that the blood of bulls and sheep did not actually atone for the sins of the people. They pointed forward to Christ. But within that covenant, that kept them faithful. That kept them in good standing. So it's not just sin in general that has led Micah to speak these words, or the Lord to speak to Micah, or through Micah to the people. There are specific sins that the Lord is addressing here. Consider verse 7. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay to waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute, they shall return. And you've got to love the prophets because they are full of vivid imagery. The people are worshiping other gods. They are worshiping idols. And thus they have become adulterers. They have broken their marriage vows to the Lord. And the picture here is that the Lord God himself is an aggrieved husband. He is a husband who has been cheated on with a prostitute. And he is rightfully angry. And that prostitute is a piece of carved wood. So you're replacing the God who comes out of heaven and melts the mountains with a piece of wood that you have carved. That is the problem. Throughout Scripture, in the Old and the New Testament, marriage is held up as a picture, given to us by God, of God's relationship with us. So why is marriage so wonderful? Well, because it's a picture of God's love for His people. Why is marriage, when it falls apart, so terrible? Because it's a picture of what happens when we reject God. The pinnacle of the creation account in Genesis 1-2 is Adam seeing Eve for the first time and then breaking out in poetry to describe his love for her and the beauty of her. The pinnacle of the creation account is the man and the woman coming together. The end of Scripture... One of the pinnacles at the end of Scripture is the wedding supper of the Lamb. Another marriage. 
The whole Bible is dripping with this idea that the union of a man and his wife in a lifelong marriage is a picture of God's love, of his pleasure, and of his blessing found in the kingdom of our union with Christ. Is this a pale picture? Yes. It's a pale picture. But it's a picture nonetheless. And as painful and as gut-wrenching as adultery is on a human level, as devastating and painful as divorce can be in this life, I'm a child who has lived through divorce, that is but a pale reflection of the treachery of humanity towards God. A pale reflection. God says to Israel, you are adulterers. He continues with his, his list of sins. Chapter 2, verses 1-3. through three, Another sin that is provoking God's anger here is wicked leaders. Woe to those who devise wickedness and who work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and they seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. What we see here is there's a group of individuals in Israel who have the power in their hand. So he's talking about those who actually have the authority and the power to carry out their wicked schemes. And they are so consumed with that wickedness that they lay awake at night thinking and dreaming about how they can take stuff from others. Apparently, Washington, D.C. existed beforehand too. They plot on their bed, they steal, they covet, and they have the power to oppress, and so they do. We have a word for that. Oppression. Tyranny. The problem here, we need to be clear, is not just that these people are rich. It is not just because they are powerful. Job was a righteous man who was rich from the hand of God. David was a righteous man, largely, who wielded his power, largely, rightly. Jesus' ministry was supported by rich people. Jesus doesn't do his ministry without that support. Contrary to modern thinking, the mere existence of rich and powerful people is not the problem. It's when we use that in a way to harm others, thinking that our power is enough to keep away God's judgment. Those put in power, those blessed with wealth and status, and those, and those people who have those blessings are indeed in some way blessed by God. But they are called to use those things rightly. I mean... For goodness sakes, God promised Israel material blessings. He said, you move into this land, it'll be flowing with milk and honey. The problem isn't in the things. It's in our hearts. Wicked leaders invite God's judgment. Another sin listed hits a little closer to home for me. And that is the sin of faithless preaching. Chapter 2, verses 6 and verse 11. Listen to these words. Do not preach! Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Then verse 11. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. God's got a sense of humor. The preacher of this people would be a drunk. 
The problem here is that the preachers and teachers of Israel are in one way limiting what can be preached. Don't talk about that. You're not allowed to talk about that. Well, you, well God's given us this word. About, no, you're not allowed to talk about that. Don't preach about that. God will not judge us. They're not allowed to talk about God's judgment of specific sins. They say God will not judge us. The sin isn't bringing on us wrath of God. And Micah's God-inspired taunt is that the preachers of this people are like drunks who utter wind, lies, and nonsense. And again, that should make us pause and think. I want to preface what I'm about to say with, with this. There are a lot of faithful preachers in this land still. I know many of them. I've benefited from, from many of their ministries. Those preachers generally do not draw huge crowds. Some of them do. But faithfulness in general is not very popular. It's just not. And so, having prefaced what I'm about to say, I'll, I'll say it. The pulpits of this land are every bit as unfaithful as what Micah describes here. Every bit. We have things that I'm breaking rules all the time in this church talking about from the pulpit. Don't talk about that. Don't preach that. We have cowards and drunks behind many a pulpit who speak breath. That's it. Wind. Nonsense. We have court jesters who excel at talking wind but only have lies for content. The largest church in this country is a temple to self-esteem and getting wealthy. It's not a church, but it calls itself one. Even conservative pulpits have taboos and extra-biblical requirements. Even conservative pulpits nuance the life out of what the Bible speaks clearly and bluntly about. Even conservative pulpits rarely speak of hell, judgment, and eternal damnation. Our pulpits are largely staffed with comedians, entertainers, drunks, and spineless cowards who should know better. May the Lord have mercy on us. All of these sins listed here can be summarized as this. The people of Israel and Judah are unfaithful to the covenant. They have broken the covenant that the Lord has made with them. The covenant provisions for general sins aren't covering this because they've broken the covenant completely. They've tossed it aside. They have pursued other lovers, other gods, and they have the audacity to pretend that God will not judge them. We don't need this. God still won't do anything about it. As a courtroom drama, this idea of the covenant faithfulness of God and the covenant unfaithfulness of man will appear again and again, not just in Micah, but throughout all of Scripture. Why is God judging Israel when he's in covenant with her? Because they've broken it. They have, in effect, already divorced themselves from the Lord. They have exchanged him for lifeless chunks of wood, all the while 
they tell their preachers they can't preach about it. And that everything will be alright. What must we do? What must Israel and Judah do? Well, the first thing we are told to do here is to lament that sin and to repent. Chapter 1, verse 16. Make yourselves bald. Cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. God says, shave off your hair. In the ancient world, that's a sign of mourning. Sorry to those of you who don't have any hair. But that's a sign of mourning in the ancient world. Cut off your hair and weep and mourn over your sin because the exile is coming. Your children will not be in this land, he says to them. God will judge. All throughout Scripture, God tells us of his judgment, and he does so out of his love and out of his patience. God could have just sent Assyria and Babylon in and taken the, Israels out, the Israelites out and never said a word to them. Instead, he sends them prophets, and lots of them, again and again. And they preach about the judgment so that they might repent. In other words, the call to mercy and repentance is implied. We see this most clearly in the book of Jonah. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He ends up in Nineveh anyways. He shows up in Nineveh to tell them God's message. And all that we get of his message is this. In 40 days, God will destroy this city. That's it. No, please repent. Just God's going to destroy the city in 40 days. Uh, Jonah goes up to the hill to wait for God to come and judge the Ninevites. But the Ninevites repent. And then Jonah gets upset. And he says, God, the reason why I didn't want to come here in the first place is because I knew that even by sending me with this message that you were being merciful. That I knew that you would forgive them. That's why I didn't want to come. I wanted to run away so that you would just judge them. God sends prophets, not out of hate or anger, but out of patience and a desire to forgive that the people might repent. This is a call for us to weep over the ugliness of our sin and to turn from it and live. But I want you to hear this very carefully. Confessing your sin all by itself is not enough. If that's all there is to it, then your guilt remains upon your head. God is still a holy judge. He is still the witness of our sins. You just saying, I'm guilty, doesn't actually remove your guilt. The prophets are full of judgment, but they also offer hope of future salvation. Something must remove your guilt. Yes, you need to confess, but something more needs to be done. And we get this picture in Micah 2, 12-13. You have your Bibles. I want you to look at this carefully. There's a character introduced in this book that I will call the Shepherd King. By that title, you know who it's eventually going to be about. But this character is introduced, and he'll come up again throughout this book and throughout the entire uh, Minor Prophets, as it were. But the Lord says this, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob, 
I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Even in the face of our unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. He will, like a shepherd, he says here, gather his flock. He will gather them together. And this shepherd will also be the king who goes before them. And we read that God identifies himself as the great shepherd in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There is here an intentional allusion to King David. Why do we have a shepherd king here in Micah? Because that's who David was. And there's a promise of a greater David to come. So the prophet Micah, through the Lord here, is looking at the promises to David and his line, and he is saying that God will one day bring forward this shepherd who is also a king. And this king will open a breach, and he will free his people, and he himself will lead his people out from God's judgment and from the exile. And this great shepherd king both cares for his people and he saves them. And so we get this hint also at the end there that the king is the Lord himself. The Lord goes before him, before the people. It is the Lord at the head. So we learn here that this great shepherd king is a shepherd, he's a king, and he's also God. He's also the Lord. He is Christ, the good shepherd, John 10, who lays down his life for the sheep. He is Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is Christ, who dies for the sins of his people. If Christ does not die for your sins, your confessions do nothing. Your guilt remains. The hope of our people is not just confession in repentance, though we need that. But our hope is in the faithfulness of God as displayed in the shepherd king. The shepherd of the sheep, the son of David, the king of the universe, the Lord in the flesh, Jesus Christ. For upon him falls the judgment of his people. And he will lead out his people in triumph. This passage brought another passage to mind of one of Micah's contemporaries, Isaiah 55, another messianic prophecy, says this, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting sign that shall never be cut off. Think of where we began in Micah and here in Isaiah 55. Instead of being in terror in the presence of the Lord, we are led out by the Lord in joy. Instead of the mountains melting in His presence, the mountains break forth in praise for what the Lord has done. And this will be an everlasting sign that will never be cut off that will make a name for our God. That He is the Shepherd King, revealed to us 
in the death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming of Jesus Christ. God will judge. And in his judgment, it will either fall upon you and your head or the head of that shepherd king. Every sin will be judged. Either by you or on you or on Christ. And the hope that we have is in the faithfulness of God expressed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And because of what he has done, one day the mountains will burst forth in praise. One day we will be led out in joy. For the king has come and the king has conquered. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in your word we see a picture not only of sin and judgment, but of hope. That upon his sacred head was placed our sins. Lord, may we never get over that. May that never become old news to us. May we see again this morning anew our desperate need for a Savior. And in that desperation, May we find joy in your faithfulness through sending your Son to die in our place. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.